Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to Trundle Bed Tales. My name is Sarah Utoff, and I'm here tonight for a very special episode because uh, the first Wednesday in uh, in March is na- is World Read Aloud Day, and that's going to keep ringing unless I go stop it. So hold on. Oh, it just stopped. Yay! Okay. Um, and if you're listening live, I apologize for being just a little late going. I had a uh, connection problem on this end, but hopefully it's all worked out now. So, Okay, hopefully that's the end of our connection issues. All right. The first Wednesday in May is, or in March, the first Wednesday in March is always World uh, Read Aloud Day. So... In honor of that, I had previously done an episode where I read out of some 19th century readers. And when I thought about something else that I could do special for this year's event, I wanted I came up with the idea of reading out of Millbank. Now, uh, if you are a Laura Ingalls Wilder fan, you, this is the book that Laura talks about in On the Banks of Plum Creek. She's trying to convince Ma that she doesn't have to go to school because she already knows how to read. And so she opens the book and starts reciting the words because she's heard Ma read this book aloud so often that she has at least the beginning memorized. And I was well familiar with that story, but it just had never occurred to me to look up and find out who the author of Millbank was. I think maybe it was partly because I had it mixed up in my head with Mill on the Floss, which is a book I didn't want to read. But when I read uh, Constructing the Little House by Anne Romney's Romains, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sure I slaughtered her name, but it, uh, it, she says in there and identified the author as Mary J. Holmes. And I kind of went, wow. Because Mary J. Holmes was a very famous 19th century author. Nobody much knows about her today, but it just so happens that another book of hers, Dead on the Hillside, was my great-grandmother's favorite book, and she named my grandmother after a character in that book. So I had been collecting Mary J. Holmes stuff for quite a while, not really with any definite plan, but if I was in an antique store, if I was at a used book sale, if I was... Uh, at a flea market, I would look around, and if they had a nice Mary J. Holmes book, I'd get it. It was one of the the authors that I looked for. But it wasn't until, uh, well, the only title that I really uh, wanted to make sure I had copy of was Homestead on the Hillside, and I did actually have the family copy, but I got one to give to other people since it was where my grandmother's name came from. And other than that, I just kind of randomly went with what books I found. But when I found that reference to Millbank, I went ahead and got a copy of that. And I haven't yet had a chance to read it, though I've read several others of hers. So this is going to be a cold read, and I hope that you enjoy it. Millbank by Mary J. Holmes. 
Chapter 1. Expecting Roger. Every window and shutter at Millbank was closed. Knots of crepe were streaming from both the bell knobs, and all around the house there was that deep hush which only the presence of death can inspire. Indoors there was a kind of twilight gloom pervading the room, and servants spoke in whispers whenever they came near the chamber where the old squire had died three days before, and where he still lay in his handsome coffin, waiting the arrival of Roger, the son of his old age, did home on the night when our story opened. Squire Irving had died suddenly in the act of writing to his boy Roger, and when found by old Alec, his hand still grasped the pen, and his head was resting on the letter he would never finish. Heart disease was the verdict of the inquest, and then the electric wires carried the news of his decease to St. Louis, where Roger was, and to number blank, Lexington Avenue, New York, where lived the widow of the squire's eldest son, Mrs. Walter Scott Irving, as she always called herself, and fancying that in some way the united names of two so illustrious authors as Irving and Scott shed a kind of literary halo upon one who bore them. Mrs. Walter Scott Irving had been breakfasting in her cozy little back parlor when the news came to her of her father-in-law's sudden death, and to say that she was both astonished and shocked is only to do her justice, but to insinuate that she was sorry, though, is quite another thing. She was not sorry, though her smooth white brow contracted into wrinkles, and she tried to speak very sadly and sorrowfully as she said to her son Frank, a boy of nine or more, Your grandfather is dead. Poor man, you'll never see him again. Frank was sorry. The happiest days of his life had been spent at Millbank. He liked the house and the handsome grounds, with the grand old woods in the rear, and the river beyond, where in a little sheltered nook lay moored the boat he called his own. He liked the spotted pony which he always rode. He liked the freedom from restraint which he found there in the country, and he liked the old man who was so kind to him and who petted him sometimes when Roger was not by. Roger had been absent on the occasion of Frank's last visit to Millbank, and his grandfather had taken more than the usual notice of him, had asked him many questions as to what he meant to do when he grew to manhood, and what he would do, supposing he should some day be worth a great deal of money. Would he keep it, or would he spend it fast and foolishly as father had spent the portion allotted to him? You'd keep it, wouldn't you, and put it on interest, his mother had said, laying his hand upon his light hair, with a motion which she meant could, should convey some suggestion or idea to his mind. But Frank had a few ideas of his own. He never took hints or suggestions, and boy-like, he answered, I'd buy a lot of horses, and Roger and Mead would set up a circus out in the park. It was an unlucky answer, for the love of fast horses had been the ruin of Frank's father, but the mention of Roger went far toward softening the old man. Frank had thought of Roger at once. He would be generous with him, let what would happen, and the frown which the horses had brought to the squire's face cleared away as he said, Hang your horses, boy. Keep clear of them as you would shun the smallpox, but be fair and just with Roger. Poor Roger, I doubt if I did right. 
This speech has been followed by the squire's going hastily out upon the terrace, where, with his hands behind him and his head bent forward, he had walked for more than an hour, while Mrs. Walter Scott peered anxiously at him from time to time, seemed a good deal disturbed. They had returned to the city the next day, and Frank had noticed some changes in their rather plain style of living. Another servant was added to the establishment, and they had more dishes at dinner, while his mother went out oftener to the opera and to Stuart's. Now his grandfather was dead. And she sat there looking at him across the table as the tears gathered in her eyes, and when he stammered out, "'We shall never go to Millbank any more.' She said soothingly to him, We may live there altogether. Would you like it? He did not comprehend her clearly, but the thought that his grandfather's death did not necessarily mean banishment from Billbank helped to dry his eyes, and he began to whistle merrily at the prospect of going at once to Millbank, for they were to start the very day on a three o'clock train. It was better to be on the ground as soon as possible, Mrs. Walter Scott reflected, and after a visit to her dressmaker, who promised that the deepest of mourning suits should follow her, she took her heavy trailing black silk and camel hair shawl, which were sure to make a sensation, and started with Frank for Millbank. Mrs. Walter Scott Irving was not a favorite at Millbank. She had never been a favorite there since her husband had taken her there as a bride, and she had given mortal offense to the two real heads of the household, Alec and Hester Floyd, by putting on all sorts of airs, snubbing little Roger, and speaking of his mother as that low creature whose disgraceful contact had nearly prevented her marriage. Hester Floyd, to whom this was said, could have forgiven the heirs if that had been all. Indeed, she rather looked upon them as belonging by right to one who was so fortunate to marry into the Irving family. But when it came to slighting little Roger for his mother's heir, and to speaking of that mother as a low creature, Hester's bl hot blood was roused, and there commenced at once a quiet, unspoken warfare, which had never ceased between herself and the offending Mrs. Walter Scott. Hester was as much a part of Millbank as the stately old trees in the park, a few of which she had herself helped Alec to plant when she was a girl of eighteen and he a boy of twenty. She had lived at Millbank more than thirty years. She had come there when the first Mrs. Irving was a bride. She had carried Walter Scott to be christened. She had been his nurse and slapped him with her shoe at least a dozen times. She had been married to Alec in her mistress's dining room. She'd seen the old house torn down and a much larger, handsomer one built in its place. Then, just after it was completed, she had followed her mistress to the grave and shut up the many beautiful rooms, which were no longer of any use. Two years passed, and then her master electrified her one day with the news that he was bringing a second bride to Millbank, a girl younger than his son Walter, and against whom... Hester to set herself fiercely against, against an usurper of her rights. But when the sweet, pale-faced Jessie Morton came, with her great, sad blue eyes, which always seemed full of tears, and her curls of golden hair, Hester's resentment began to give way, for she could not harbor malice toward a creature so lovely, so sad withal. And after that interview in the bedchamber, when poor Jessie threw herself with a passionate cry into Hester's arms and sobbed piteously, 
Be kind to me, won't you? Be my friend. I have none in the world or I should not be here. I did not want to come. She became her strongest ally and proved that Jessie's confidence had not been misplaced. There had come a dark, dark day from Millbank since then, and Jessie's picture painted in full dress with pearls on her beautiful neck and arms and in her golden hair had been taken from the parlor wall and banished to the garret, and Jessie's name was never spoken by the master, either to his servants or his little boy Roger, who had a dash of gold in his brown hair and a look in his dark blue eyes like that at Jessie's used to wear when in the long evenings before his birth she sat with folded hands gazing into the blazing fire as if trying to solve the dark mystery of her life and know why her lot had been cast there at Millbank with the old man whom she did not hate but whom she could not love. There was a night, too, which Hester never forgot, a night when, with a nervous agony depicted in every liniment, Jessie made her swear, come what might, that she would never desert or cease to love the boy Roger sleeping so quietly in his little crib. She was to care for him as if he were her own and consider his interest before that of any other. A noble man, that was what Jessie asked and what Hester swore to do. And then followed swiftly terror and darkness and disgrace and close upon their footsteps came retribution and Jessie's golden head was laying low off Hatteras's storm-beaten shore, and Jessie's name was rarely heard. But Hester kept her vow, and since that dreadful morning when Jessie did not answer the breakfast call and Jessie's room was vacant, Roger had never wanted for a mother's care. She had no children of her own, and she took him instead, petting and caring for and scolding him as he deserved, and through all loving him with a brooding, clinging, unselfish love which would stop at nothing, which she could make herself believe was right for her to do in his behalf. And so, when the young bride looked coldly upon him and spoke slightingly of his mother, Hester declared battle at once, and the hatchet had never been buried, for Mrs. Walter Scott and her frequent visits to Millbank had only deepened Hester's first impression of her. A proud, stuck-up person with no kind of reason for being so, except that she married one of the Irvingses was what Hester said of her, and this opinion was warmly seconded by Alec, who had always thought just as Hester did. Had she been Eve and he was her Adam, he would have eaten the forbidden fruit without question as his right to do so, just because she gave it to him. He would have taken it upon himself as if the idea and act had been his alone. For Frank, there was no more toleration at Millbank. Could he be with such a mother? Now if he'd had Roger's bringing up, he'd be different. And though there was, there was more of the brown blood in him than the Irving, little skinny, spindly, white-haired critter, there wasn't half so much snap to him as there was to Roger. In this condition of things, it was hardly to be supposed that Mrs. Walter Scott's reception at Millbank was very cordial when, on the evening after the squire's death, the village hack deposited her at the door. Mrs. Walter Scott did not like the depot hack. It brought her so much on a level with the common, common people, and her first words to Hester were, Why wasn't the carriage sent for us? Weren't we expected? There was an added air of importance in her manner, and she spoke like one whose right it was to command there, and Hester detested it at once. 
but in her manner there was, if possible, less of a deference than she usually paid to the great lady. Alec had the neurology, and we didn't know just let, um, know justly when you'd come, was her reply, as she led way to the chamber which Mrs. Walter Scott had been accustomed to occupy during her visits to Millbank. I think I'll have a fire. The night is so chilly, the lady said with a shiver as she glanced at the empty grate. And Hester, stay. You may send up my tea up here after the fire is made. I have a headache, and I am too tired to go down. There was in all she said a tone and air which seemed to imply that she was now the mistress. And in truth, Mrs. Walter Scott did so rather as a kind of queen regent, who for as many years as much must elapse, ere Frank came of age, would reign supreme at Millbank. And after the fire was toast and jelly and cold kitchen... Oh, after the fire was lighted in her room and her cup of tea was brought to her with toast and jelly and cold chicken, she was thinking more, I fear, of the changes she would make in the old place than of the white, motionless figure which lay just across the hall in a room much like her own. She had not seen this figure yet. She did not wish to carry the image of death to her pillow, and so she waited till morning, when, after breakfast was over, she went with Hester to the darkened room, and with her fine cambric handkerchief ostensibly pressed to her eyes that really held to her nose, she stood a moment by the door and sighed. Poor dear old man, how sudden it was, and what a lesson it should teach us all about the mutability of life, for in an hour when we think not, death cometh upon us. Mrs. Walter Scott felt some such speech was due from her, something which savored of piety, and which might possibly do good to the angular, square-shouldered, flat-waisted woman at her side who understood what mutability meant quite as well as she would have understood so much Hebrew. But she knew the lady was putting on that in her heart she was glad the poor old man was dead, and with a jerk she drew the covering over the pinched white face, dropped the curtain which had been raised to admit the light, and then opened the door and stood waiting for her lady to pass out. I shall miss that woman at the very first good opportunity. She's been here too long to come quietly under a new administration, Mrs. Walter Scott thought as she went slower rooms, deciding at a glance that this piece of furniture should be banished to the garret, and that piece transferred to some more suitable place. The old man has lived here alone so long that everything bears the unmistakable stamp of a bachelor's hall, but I shall soon remedy that. I'll have a man from the city whose taste I can trust, she said, by which it was seen that Mrs. Walter Scott fully expected to reign triumphant at Millbank without a thought of consideration for Roger, the dead man's idol, who according to all natural laws, had a far better right there than herself. She had never fancied Roger. There was a look in his deep blue eyes and a gleam of gold in his brown curls like the picture which, unknown to everyone, she had climbed to the garret sea when she first came a bride to Millbank. Mrs. Walter Scott believed that she loved the husband who had given her the honored name of Irving, and perhaps she did. But when she first saw the glorious eyes and sweet girlish face of Jessie, her hands were involuntarily clenched and her breath came hard as she recalled the bitterest disappointment of her life when she had been deserted for this baby face, smiling at her from the canvas. She had even 
struck that baby face with the palm of her hand where the wedding ring was shining, and then had turned the picture to the wall and gone her way, and said what she did of the low creature to Hester, and snubbed little innocent Roger, who dazzled with her dark and stately style of beauty, asked if she were her mother. As Roger grew older, and she saw how superior in every way he was to her own boy, Frank, she disliked him more and more, though she tried to veil her dislike from her husband, who, during his lifetime, evinced almost as much affection for his younger half-brother as for his own son. Scott Irving was a spendthrift, and the $50,000 which his father gave him at his marriage was all, or nearly all, he was ever to have, melted away like dew in the morning sun, till he had barely enough to subsist upon. Then 10000 more was given him with the understanding that it should positively be the last dollar he was ever to receive. The rest was for Roger, the father said, and Walter acquiesced and admitted that it was right. He had had his education with 60000 besides, and he could not ask for more, for that would be to wrong his brother. This was a few days before he died so suddenly of a prevailing fever, and softened by his son's death, the old man had added to the 10000 He bought the house on Lexington Avenue and deeded it to Mrs. Walter Scott herself. Since that time, fortunate speculations had made Squire Irving a richer man than he was before the first gift to his son, and Mrs. Walter Scott had thought it very hard that Frank should, was not to share in this increase of wealth. But no such thoughts were troubling her now. It was all right, and her face wore a very satisfied look of resignation and submission as she moved languidly around the house and grounds in the morning, and then in the afternoon dressed herself in the heavy trailing silk, and throwing around her graceful shoulders a scarlet zephyr shawl, went down to receive the calls and condolences of the rector's wife and Mrs. Colonel Johnson, who came in to see her. She did not tell them she expected to be their neighbor a portion of the year, and when they spoke of Roger and his probable distress when he heard of his father's death, she looked very sorry, too, and sighed. Poor Roger, it will be a great shock to him. Then, when the lady suggested that he would undoubtedly have a great deal of property left to him, and wondered who his guardian would be, she said she did not know, lawyer Schofield, perhaps, as he had the most of Squire Irving's business. But lawyer Schofield is dead. He died three weeks ago, the lady said. And Mrs. Walter's cheek for a moment turned pale as she expressed her surprise at the news and wondered that she had not heard of it. Then the conversation drifted back to Roger, who was expected the last night and for whom the funeral was delayed. I always liked Roger, Mrs. Johnson said. He is such a manly, truthful little fellow, and so fond of my little Nellie. Indeed, I never saw a boy so fond of children as he is. It is something remarkable, and I must say I loved his mother in spite of her faults. She was a lovely creature, and it seems a thousand pities that she should have married so old a man as Squire Irving when she loved another so much. Mrs. Walter Scott said it was a pity, and she always had disapproved of unequal matches, and said she had not the honor of the lady's acquaintance, and then bowed her visitors out with her loftiest air, and went back to the parlor and thought of Roger, and wondered what people would say when they knew what she did. She would be very kind to the boy, she thought, or standing in Belvere, dear, depended on that, so she should have a home at Millbank until he was of age, when, with the legacy left to him, he could do very well for himself. She wished especially 
She wished the servants did not think quite so much of him as they did, especially Alec and Hester Floyd, who talked of nothing except that Master Roger was coming tomorrow. Her morning was coming, too, and when the next day it arrived, she arrayed herself in the heavy bombazine with a white crepe band at her throat and wrists, which relieved the somberness of her attire. She was dressing for Roger, she said, thinking it better to invent some interest in an event which was occupying so much of the servants' thoughts. The day was a damp, chilly one in mid-April, and so a fire was kindled in Roger's room. Flowers were put in there, and the easy chair from the hall library, and Hester went in and out, and then flitted to the kitchen where the pies and puddings, which Roger loved, were baking. Jerua, or Rui, as she was called, was beating eggs to Roger's favorite cake. He would be there about nine o'clock, they knew, for late in the afternoon there came a telegram from Albany saying, "'Shall be home at nine. Tell Hester to meet me at the depot without fail.' In a great flurry, Hester read the dispatch, wondering why she was to meet him without fail, and finally deciding that the affectionate boy could not wait until he reached home before pouring out his tears of grief on her motherly bosom. "'Poor child!' I presume he'll cry fit to bust when he sees me, she said to Mrs. Walter Scott, who looked with a kind of scorn upon the preparations for the supposed heir of Millbank. The night set in with a driving rain, and the wind moaned dismally as it swept past the house where the dead rested so quietly, and where the living were so busy and excited. At half-past eight the carriage came round, and Alec, in his waterproof coat, held the umbrella over Hester's head as she walked to the carriage with one shawl wrapped around her and another on her arm. Why she took the second shawl, she did not know, but afterwards, in recounting the particulars of the night's adventures, she said it was just a special providence and nothing else which put it into her head to take an extra shawl, and that a big warm one. Half an hour passed, and then the storm, Mrs. Walter Scott heard the whistle, which announced the arrival of the train, then twenty minutes went by, and Frank, who was watching by the window, screamed out, They are coming, mother! I see the lights of the carriage! If it had not been raining so hard, Mrs. Walter Scott would have gone to the door, but the damp air was sure to take the curl from her hair, and Mrs. Walter Scott thought a great deal of the heavy ringlets, which fell about her face by day, and were tightly rolled in paper. So she only went as far as the parlor door, where she stood with her white jeweled hand holding together the scarlet, scarlet scarf she had thrown around her shoulders. There seemed to be some delay at the carriage, and the voices speaking together there were low and excited. No, Hester, she is mine. She shall go in the front way, Roger was heard to say, and a moment after Hester Floyd came hurriedly into the hall, holding something under her shawl which looked to Mrs. Walter Scott like a package or a roll of cloth. Following Hester was Frank, who, having no curls to spoil, had rushed out in the rain to meet his favorite little uncle, for whom he had always been so proud. "'Oh, mother, mother!' he exclaimed. "'What do you think Rogers has brought home? Something which he found in the cars, where a wicked woman left it. Oh, ain't it so funny, Roger bringing a baby!' And having thus thrown the bombshell at his mother's feet, Frank darted after Hester, and poor Roger was left alone to make his explanations to his dreaded sister-in-law. Helen. That's the end of chapter one. Chapter two is Roger's story. I hope you've enjoyed this first chapter of Millbank and that you'll be inspired 
to read what the Ingalls family read for yourself. Thanks for joining me. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.